The Gospel according to St. Matthew. Then Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he couldn't pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of the slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Imagine two children sat in the back of a car setting off on a long journey. The chances are it won't be long before the chanting begins, are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? And probably also it won't be long before this refrain, if those children are anything like my sister and I were, um, is replaced by more anguished cries. Mom, she's over my side, leading inevitably to, Dad, he's hit me in turn eliciting, but she started it, followed by, but he was asking for it, and so on, until journey's end, or at least until a frustrated parent intervenes to try and bring some peace back to the car, by reminding the two children, and I can hear this in my dad's voice, children, two wrongs don't make a right. This scenario could easily be a parable for the world that we find ourselves in as this week we mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our screens have been full of coverage of the horrific actions taking place on the edge of Europe, as once again death and destruction and fear and tragedy are played out in widescreen in our living rooms. None of us who have witnessed these scenes can remain unmoved by them, and the emotions they stir within us are deep, 
profound, upsetting, and for some, intensely personal emotions. Of course, the offensive in Ukraine is not the first time such punches have been exchanged, and neither, sadly, will it be the last. From the Great War to the Cold War, from Palestine to Afghanistan, from Iran to Iraq, from Crusade to Jihad, from London to Madrid to New York, to the holiday destinations of Bali and Sharm el-Sheikh and a beach in Tunisia, which Liz and I will be visiting in a few weeks' time for a holiday, remembering those who were killed there a few years ago. The cycle of punch and counterpunch has defined the relationship between East and West for over a thousand years. And those of us who live in the Western world, who enjoy and laud all of the many benefits and freedoms which it grants to us, cannot escape the troubling fact that our so-called free world is locked into a destructive cycle of violence and counter-violence. Whether in defense of honor, or territory, or wealth, or freedom, or ideology, whether in search of justice or retribution, we all find ourselves complicit, willingly or unwillingly, in the spiraling world of retribution, violence, and unforgiveness around us. And the question before us is, what on earth are we to do? Indeed, we might ask, what on earth can be done? Who on earth has the power to intervene, to bring peace to a world which seems hell-bent on fighting its way to journey's end? The situation was not actually so different in the first century. The Jewish nation had been trading punches for centuries, from Assyria to Babylonia, from Greece to Rome, from the Seleucids to the Maccabees. Conquest, violence, terrorism and revolution had become an inescapable part of what it means to be Jewish. I'm reading a book at the moment, uh, published by a written by a couple of friends of mine, um, called uh, Jesus, A Life in Class Conflict. It's a fascinating Marxist uh, look at the story of Jesus by two of our uh, country's leading biblical scholars. And one of the things they're drawing out is this social world of violence in which Jesus existed. It was to people all too familiar with the vicious cycles of retribution that Jesus told a parable, not about two children fighting in the back of a car on a long car journey, but about two servants and a king. His parable provides a perfect example of the destructive nature of the cycles of retaliation and unforgiveness that surrounded Jesus and his contemporaries and which still surround us. So let's spend a moment with the story and let's begin with the first servant in the story. He is both a debtor and a creditor. He is owed money by someone who is, is below him in the social hierarchy, but he himself also owes money to someone else much higher up the ladder than he is. He's a middleman and he's in all sorts of financial trouble. He owes an unpayable debt to the king, far more than he's ever likely to earn in his lifetime. But he is in his turn also owed a much smaller debt by someone else. 
So he is, by the laws of debt and justice, entirely within his rights to demand payment from the one who owes money to him. He's entirely within his rights to extract his just dues, and if he chooses to do so by exercising violence against the second servant, the one at the bottom of the pile, then he is, by the law of his day, entitled to do that as well. But, and here's the catch, he is also in a position where the king has every entitlement to do exactly the same to him. But more so, because the debt that he owes the king is so much higher than the debt that he is owed. So, think about it for a moment. If Jesus had simply told a story about a servant who was owed some money and then took his payment by force, the chances are those listening would say, well, fair enough. Some might speculate that the servant was a bit harsh, throwing the man into debtor's prison. Some might reflect that the man had it coming um, and that he shouldn't have got into debts he couldn't repay. But the real power of the way Jesus tells this parable comes from the fact that the first servant's actions, which in and of themselves are legitimate, are contrasted with the treatment that he himself received at the hands of the king. In the light of the forgiveness he received for his own unpayable debt, his imprisonment of his debtor suddenly appears both hypocritical and shocking. He is, it turns out, a man who is happy to receive forgiveness, but is unwilling to offer it. Of course, the twist at the end of the story is that his decision to withhold forgiveness comes back to bite him, and he ends up tortured for his lack of forgiveness. In the Gospels, and in particularly Matthew's Gospel, where this story of Jesus is recorded, the language of debt and the language of sin are presented as two ways of talking about the same thing, debt and sin. In Matthew's Gospel, sins are not personal moral failures. Rather, they're presented as debts or obligations that cry out for repayment. I'm going to say that again because I think it really matters that we grasp this because you know, we have a, a cultural language of sin where we think it is the naughty things what people do. But in Matthew's Gospel, sins are not personal moral failures. They're debts or obligations that cry out for repayment. So if I were to say to someone that they had sinned against me, I would be saying that they owed me, that they were indebted to me, and that they must therefore be made to pay. We do still use the language of sin and debt in a similar way today. Uh, imagine the gangster whose honour has been slighted, leaning forward in a sinister manner and pronouncing in a deep voice, you're going to pay for that. And so much of the violence we encounter in our world, both at an interpersonal and at an international level, is about making the other person pay for some actual or perceived sin or injustice. From terrorist bomb, to punishment beating, to shooting a man as he's finished football practice, 
to tactical invasion of a country. Violence and repayment for sins, which are interpreted as debts that demand payment. It's all intertwined. We meet this language of sin and debt even in the Lord's Prayer. The version most people know best says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or if you're using the more modern version that we use here at Bloomsbury, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But if you turn to the version of the Lord's Prayer recorded in Matthew's Gospel, we meet not this language of sin and trespass, but the language of debt. Matthew chapter 6 verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You can see, can't you, how Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer speaks directly into the situation being outlined in this parable. In Luke's Gospel, the only other place the Lord's Prayer appears in the Bible, the language of sin and the language of debt are intermingled. Luke chapter 11 verse 4 Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Sometimes it pays to go back and read the Bible, rather than just recite from memory what we think we know it says. We might say, therefore, that sins committed against God are debts to God that cry out for repayment, and that any forgiveness we receive for these debts that we owe to God is inextricably linked to the offering of forgiveness to those who in turn owe debts to us. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who are indebted to us. The servant did not pray. This is the point of the parable told by Jesus. The servant has not learned the lesson that if his own debts have been forgiven, he must also forgive those who owe him a debt. He has forgotten the debt that he owed the king. Maybe it was just too big for him to contemplate. And instead he has become fixated with justifying the debt owed to him. Or to put it another way, he has forgotten that he is himself a sinner and has become fixated with the fact that he has been sinned against. In this servant's action, we see clearly the violent and destructive outcome of non-forgiveness, the consequence of his actions to extract his just reward is that he himself ends up a tortured soul, unable to pay his own debts, unable to justify his own sinfulness, even though forgiveness has been offered to him. We live in a world that is so often dedicated to the extraction of our just dues. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. You bomb my city, I'll bomb you back. These cycles of violence and counter-violence are so ingrained within us and appear so seductively just and righteous that like children in the back of the car, we cry, she's on my side and he hit me and yeah, but she started it and yeah, but he deserved it. And all too often, there is seemingly no way out of this spiral of punch and counterpunch which can only ever end in mutually destructive results. And yet, Jesus points us to the intervention of the loving parent. Our own desire for justice and retribution, no matter how righteous it might be, 
needs to be set against the forgiveness that is offered to us by the one to whom we ourselves owe an unpayable debt. When others sin against us, either individually or corporately or nationally, as they do, sometimes in the most terrible of ways, we need to measure our response by the response of the loving God to those who have sinned against God. So before we jump up on our high horse and start to demand justice from those who have sinned against us, we need to recognize that there may be others who may well be entitled to do the same from us, and there certainly is an other who is entitled to do that, but chooses not to. And I'm not just thinking here about the international response to terrorist actions or aggressive invasions. I'm thinking also about each of us as individuals. We will have incurred debts from others. Each of us has in different ways sinned against others, just as others have sinned against us. So when we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, what we are doing, and we pray this every Sunday, is we are praying that a new way of being human, a new way of relating to others, will come into being in our midst and by our actions. In this place, in a church like Bloomsbury, we speak frequently of the forgiveness offered to us by God. We say that we are those who have been forgiven. So in the wake of those moments when others do to us a great wrong, rather than automatically biting back, punching back, might we not instead be those who seek an alternative response? Might we not be those whose lives will bring into being the new kingdom of God? The new way of relating to others that Jesus talked about. A way of relating built on forgiveness rather than retaliation and retribution. So what is the just and righteous response at such times? What is to be said today, one year after Russia invaded Ukraine? We have a, a peace flag with a candle burning on it to symbolize our commitment to peace. What are we to say? What are we to do? Is it that we should ask, how can we stop this terrible thing that is happening in our world? Possibly. Is it to ask who is responsible and how can they be brought to justice? Possibly. Is it to assert we must ensure that the aggressors are defeated in such a way that they will never attempt to do the same again, either in the Ukraine or elsewhere? Well, possibly. This too is a just response. Will these responses break the cycle of violence and counter-violence? I very much doubt it. Difficult though this is, especially when someone has intentionally committed a great evil, to see that atrocity as the latest in a long cycle and spiral of violence and oppression and imprisonment and subjugation and repression and retaliation is, I think, to learn to see it as it truly is. I worry sometimes about the way 
the media propaganda, which, let's face it, media is, is always about propaganda, present the conflict of the moment, you know, and as is currently the Ukraine conflict, but the same could be said of other conflicts we've experienced over the years, um, almost as if they are, are simplistically isolated and it's just bad man does bad thing, good people resist bad man. I'm not saying a bad man is not doing a bad thing and that the bad man needs to be resisted. Hear me clearly. I am saying this doesn't exist in isolation. It is a product and the latest end result of something that goes back much further. And we need to learn to see that. And so when we retaliate in the name of righteousness and justice, when we meet violence with escalating violence, when we demand our pound of flesh from the other in return for wrongs committed against us or our friends, we are committing ourselves to a spiral of retribution that can only end in torture and terror. As the unforgiving servant in our parable discovered. Is there another way? Well, provocatively, I'm going to say, yes, I think there is, and I think it is called forgiveness. The title of this sermon is a question. What good does forgiveness do? And here we have the answer. It breaks the cycle, the spiral of violence. Now, I'm aware that using the language of forgiveness when as a nation and as, 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 a, as a collaboration of nations, we're engaged in armed conflict in defense of an ally and against an aggressor is a deeply uncomfortable thing to do. But at the risk of offloading the blame here, I think Jesus knew what he was doing when he did exactly the same thing. Christian living after the pattern of Christ should be a continual dispensing of mercy and forgiveness, mirroring God's own character and treatment of God's people. If we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it already is in heaven, then we have to start living as the people of that coming kingdom. And this means living as people of forgiveness, forgiving the debts of others as we ourselves have been forgiven. Society will often view such behavior as weakness, or even as traitorous. And even in our churches, forgiveness and mercy are all too lacking in our dealings with one another. Mahatma Gandhi reportedly said, only the strong can forgive. The cost of forgiveness should never be trivialized. And when we offer someone forgiveness for their debt of sin towards us, we will always count the cost of this action in our own selves. And there will come a time, hopefully soon, when the West has a choice as to how it will respond to Putin's aggression as the and the people of Russia who are caught up in it. For some, in some situations, forgiveness of the debt of another will be a step too far. I have a friend who was abused as a child and she tells of various well-meaning Christians who have told her over the years that she must forgive her abuser. Her reflection on this has been that the requirement on her to offer forgiveness has made worse the abuse of her past by placing her once again in a position of weakness, with others demanding of her what she doesn't want to give. However, she has also said that she can see forgiveness as a goal towards which it is worth aiming, even if it remains forever out of reach for her in this life. Some people within this community 
will also find great difficulty and pain in all of this talk of forgiveness. There are those of us for whom the abuse and the sin is too raw, who have to live with a range of feelings from anger to injustice, from rage to profound grief. We must never trivialize forgiveness and we must never abusively ask of the other that which they are unable to give. Forgiveness is not easy and it does not come lightly, it does not come easily, and for some it remains out of reach. But Jesus' parable challenges us to never give up making forgiveness and reconciliation our goal. There are many ways in which we can be active in forgiveness of sins and debts, as through our actions and by our prayers we bear testimony to the inbreaking kingdom of peace. So, we might consider becoming active in supporting those who work for peace, between those nations caught in vicious cycles of violence. We might become involved in campaigning to end torture and oppression through the work of organizations like Amnesty International or Action by Christians Against Torture. We might intentionally build conversations and friendships with those from other faith communities, both as a church and as individuals. And by doing so, we might play our part in bringing together diverse religious and cultural communities in relationship and shared understanding, even when so much that is going on in our world makes such relationships uncomfortable or problematic. It was an enormous privilege this week to be representing this community um, in um, one of the meeting rooms in Parliament, in the, house, in, in the Houses of Parliament, as we met with um, Nikki Aitken, the MP for Westminster, to talk about issues such as homelessness and, and violence and, and you know, the issues that, that face the West End. And I was just very aware that I was sat there, there were three Christian ministers, there was a, a devout Jew, and the meeting was chaired by some young Muslim women. That was through our work with uh, London citizens. There are opportunities for us to break down the barriers that have historically divided us, to find new and peaceful ways forward. We might involve ourselves in campaigning for the forgiveness of debts owed to the West by countries that can never repay. Tim Griffith may not any longer be a church member here, but he's part of our wider community and the Jubilee Debt Campaign remains active. We may change our purchasing practices, subverting the global system of debt and oppression that generates so much of our international conflict by buying fairly traded products or investing our money in ethical funds. We might choose to become involved in local initiatives aimed at alleviating the burden of personal financial debts through the offering of debt advice or the establishment of a credit union. We might simply seek to lift up those who have fallen on our doorstep in poverty and need. Jesus' parable about forgiveness, you see, speaks down the centuries to our context, to the world in which we find ourselves today, and it challenges us to be those who find ways of living forgiveness in a world that seems hell-bent on violence. And Peter asked Jesus, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? 
And Jesus replied, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Don't count it, just do it. Thank you, Simon. Let's take a few moments as we reflect on the sermon. Panel would like to join me. Anybody online? No? John Mock, let you start. It's a difficult subject, isn't it? Um, you know, viewed simplistically, our commitment to peace and our duty and our desire for forgiveness may look like we abdicate, we are passive, we let evil spread on and we don't fight back. And I find that difficult and uncomfortable. And I think perhaps there is a merit in decomposing the, the, the process. And the first step probably is that injustice, when it happens, must be stopped. Evil, when it happens, and sometimes great deliberate evil must be stopped by all means, by peaceful, diplomatic ways, perhaps sometimes by force in the last resort. And this is uncomfortable standing in front of a peace candle, but there needs to be some form of justice being enforced to stop the injustice and evil. But that is only step one. I think where the real work for, and it might be unavoidable, where the real work for peacemaking and the path for forgiveness starts is when we are able to step beyond that and go to a form of perhaps first acknowledgement recognition of what has happened by both parties, perhaps a form of apology, personal or international. And that, with the passage of time, and I think forgiveness needs time and needs a lot of work, leads to, you know, breaking the cycle of violence through, through forgiveness. But that requires 
confidence building, it requires personal steps, it requires institutional steps, and it is a way in which we can all be involved as, as we are with supporting uh, this uh, organization in, in Palestine or elsewhere as we are through our personal and civic uh, actions. I think that is the real permanent fight we are, we are engaged with, with to, to try and, and break the cycle of, uh, of violence and, and have lasting peace, even though we know it's a never-ending story. Thank you. Liz. I think um, the enormity of this subject um, it hits me whenever I hear the term forgiveness really because on, on one level you're talking how do you deal with it yourself um, but then you're thinking also national international what, what does that mean especially bearing in mind you know current circumstances in Ukraine um, just taking it back a bit to a personal level at the moment I um, anyone who knows me well will, will say that sometimes I can have a little bit too much of a, a high um, sense of justice when it comes to when, when things have to be right and I, I really don't like it if people get away with stuff and um, uh, and, and it, there seems to be kind of a, a debt involved I get I get a bit anxious about that and actually this week I had a, a experience of that which will sound really stupid in, in light of international affairs but um, Oh, we have some neighbours that we always very kindly take parcels in for and they get quite a lot of parcels, certainly during lockdown they did. And, um, and then this week we had a, a little card come through to say that these neighbours had refused to take a parcel for us. And uh, I got quite cross about this because, you know, we have taken in lots of parcels and I couldn't quite understand why our neighbour would just refuse if they were in. And I started saying to Simon, well, um, of course, next time a parcel comes for them, then I'm not going to take it in. It, I'm, you know, I'm going to refuse it, and then they'll get a card saying that they've refused it. And that did occur to me as being quite a ridiculous solution to, to this scenario, but it, it kind of stuck in my head as I was listening to the sermon today, because that kind of reaction of justice, you know, um, comes quite easily to me. And what it made me think about is how much it damages the individual uh, not only the person that you're, you know, the, the servant who was thrown in jail obviously gets damaged, but it, it, it damages yourself because inevitably what that's going to lead to is a breakdown in relation, a good relationship with our neighbours and inevitably our parcels aren't going to get, you know, get delivered and I'm going to personally suffer from, from that, that kind of response. So I think for me I realised seeking that alternative response can be a very real thing just in very small silly circumstances like that where actually you're thinking no I need to, to have a bit of empathy it could have just been that those people were were not able to take that parcel in or they were busy or you know there, there was other circumstances on, on, a, on a kind of national level I struggle more with what that means um, and and it also got me thinking on a level even with how I relate to God. Um, I think sometimes 
it's easy within our settings to, to forget that we need to, to forgive ourselves as well. Um, and, you know, the guilt that comes with not forgiving yourself actually can lead to a whole load of distraction as well. But I guess that a couple of things that just at the end I took away with me there was that forgiveness is for me very much a process and it's not a one-off. I often think I've forgiven someone and I feel really great about that and then I'll see them a week later and I'll realize that actually I'm still really, really angry and I haven't forgiven them really. And maybe I did forgive them, but actually it is just this process that I have to go through and it's not a one-off, it's a, a, a kind of process that, that will probably go on for a long time, maybe forever. And I think the idea of forgiveness being a goal, both internationally and personally, really helps me, um, but also in my relationship with God as well. Thank you very much. We'll continue to respond to the sermon as we sing together, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. Dear merciful Lord, in these terrible times where natural disasters and man-made wars bring so much misery onto so many people, let us be challenged by Jesus' parable about forgiveness. Let us acknowledge that we have been forgiven so many times for our shortcomings, our selfishness, and our tendencies of giving up hope, because of your love, may we also be able to forgive others as well as ourselves. Even when we can't see where the path of peace and reconciliation lies, such as in Russia's war on Ukraine or in the seemingly never-ending conflict between Israel and Palestine. We trust that there will be a way and we ask you to guide us there. Let us overcome our human weaknesses, our constant search for power and retribution and follow the example of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Let us also be inspired by human leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, or Nelson Mandela, who managed to break the cycle of violence, forgive, and move forward with their people, allowing peace and reconciliation to return to broken countries. Today, too, in the world around us, we can see people working for peace and we give thanks and commend them to you. We pray for the leaders of all countries and for the difficult decisions they have to make. Grant them wisdom and the courage to overcome the simple ways of violence and retribution. We pray for the soldiers engaged in conflicts on all sides trapped in wars they may not have chosen and in cycles of violence that seem inescapable. We pray for the civilians who are suffering but are also active in multiple ways. Be with them, be with them all, bringing them hope and comfort and grant them 
grant us all the power to forgive and move forward, however hard it may seem. Dear Lord, we thank you for all the signs of solidarity and empathy that have been revealed during these hard times, for all the support provided in various ways to people in need. Thank you for every person rescued, welcomed, or healed. We pray for all the people in Turkey and Syria in need of food or shelter and for the multiple actors that are dealing with the immediate emergencies as well as, as those that will be involved in the huge task of reconstruction. We thank you for the people in our country and in Europe welcoming refugees from conflict countries helping them to navigate the difficult administrative maze, to find new homes, to learn another language, and providing them with warmth and relationship despite all the differences. We thank you for all the people involved in providing healing and reconciliation in broken families. Dear Lord, for all the people who hurt, we pray. May we share their pains and bring them comfort. We pray for forgiveness in communities, in families, and in churches. And we pray that we too may be able to forgive when the time is right. As you showed us the path, may we deepen our commitment to make this world a better place. May we be inspired and called to action as individuals and as a church here in the place and in the role which you have set for us. May we learn to better share our resources, to fight together for more justice and for more respect for one another and for all the living creatures in this earth. As we marvel about your wonderful nature let us also be more responsible about it by putting more efforts to combat climate change and preserve our environment. Dear Lord, as we leave this service, knowing that we will always be forgiven by your grace, may we too be more forgiving and more attentive to the needs of people and the world around us. May we take your words in our hearts and act on them. May we ask, we ask for all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Stand fast in the truth. Testify to, the, to grace, to the grace of God. Peace be with you and all who are in Christ and all you meet. Amen.